complete Shishtaf Kishlowski. This is episode 10. We'll be covering the uh, Polish Tourism Board Presents Decalogue 5, or a short <laughs> film about killing. Uh, I don't think that's the real title. Um, so we this will, this will be a little bit of a departure from the previous episodes. We'll be covering just one story, but told in two slightly different ways. Um, when Kieślowski was making Decalogue, he decided that he needed more money to produce the films, and so he uh, went to a different government agency and got money to uh, expand two of the uh, Decalogue episodes into feature-length films to be shown in theaters. And the one that they picked was this one. Uh, or he picked this one, that's what it is. And then the the uh, the next one we'll be covering on uh, on the uh, Decalogue 6 is the one that, that the uh, movie studio picked, which is a little bit more understandable. <laughs> um, I am Matt Gasteyer, and uh, my co-host is here as usual, Travis Trudell. How are you today, Travis? I'm doing great. That's swell. <laughs> <laughs> I might bring it, bring in, bring in my big energy to this. You episode. are, you're, you're countering the <laughs> the dead hanging cat. Um, oh man, yeah, yeah. that's a ble- that's a bleak, bleak <laughs> opener. That's that's not the kind of thing you want to start your day seeing. No, and speaking of bleak lead-ins, um, Cole Rulane, Rulane is here with us. Cole Rulane, how you doing? Hey Cole? everybody, <laughs> I'm doing very well, thank you. How are you guys? We're doing great, and uh, it's a pleasure for, to have you back on the show as our honorary. Uh, there's a kill. There's killing in the title. Let's get Cole Rolaine on this show. <laughs> I am an authority, theoretically on paper. I am an authority. That's what we've heard. Yeah, <laughs> quote unquote theoretically. Yeah. For all those who don't know Cole, he is the co-host of a fantastic podcast called the Magic Lantern Podcast, which if you are listening to our show and not theirs, then shame on you. Indeed, yes. And you're also our, our boss, right, on uh, the 25th yeah, Grand Media. Yeah, right. I've got some TPS reports that we need to talk about here, so <laughs> yeah. whenever we can make time for that. That sounds perfect, Cole. Um, yeah, no, you started uh, 25th Frame uh, with, with Aaron West, of course, and um, there's a a great lineup of shows with uh with magic lantern and now uh sort of at the at the bow of the ship and uh it's an it's an honor to be associated with your show which is just a really great um in-depth exploration of the the movies that that you and and your co-host and uh wife erica love uh, so much so um it's a pleasure to both be associated with your show and to have you on here again because it's always fun to talk to you well, thank you. I appreciate that. And Erica says hello. She's in the other room with the pups watching Harry Potter right now. <laughs> nice. It's a little different. A little different. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I think in comparison to uh, the conversation that we'll have next time, there are certain unique characteristics to uh, each one of these pieces, but they are <laughs> essentially telling the same story, which is the story of... Um, three people, a, a lawyer, um, a taxi driver, and a man who is or essentially a young boy who is um, uh, lost adrift in the city and uh, eventually uh, murders the taxi driver. And then, as uh, Kieślowski himself put it, the law 
murders him. Uh, if you think that you've seen the episode uh, by only watching the movie, or you think that you've seen the movie by only watching the episode, you're wrong. They're different. Mm. They're unique. They're special in their own way. Uh, so I recommend watching both of them. Um, but before we get into it, uh, since this is your first time on this season, Cole, I thought you could just speak a little bit to um, your relationship with Kieślowski and his films, how you came to his work and how that has evolved as you've seen more of his work and as you have uh, made your way through uh, your movie watching career. Okay. Yeah, I am mainly familiar with the latter half of his catalog, I came into it in a way that I'm similar, that I am sure is similar to a lot of other cinephiles at that point when he was becoming more internationally commercially successful from the Decalogue on essentially with the three colors and the double life of Veronique. But the way I found him, I used to work at Waterloo Records when we had a sister video store, which is probably where I should have worked instead. And on breaks and lunch hours and stuff, I would just go and dig and dig and dig through the stacks. And that's how I found Camera Buff, which was a great little sleeper discovery for me. I really am fond of the meta qualities of the filmmaker turning the camera upon himself. And then, of course, the absurdities of all the censorship that's in it. So that was my foot in the door. But of all of them, I would say a short film about killing and the double life of Veronique are my two favorites, but for very different reasons. Hmm. Well, that's great that we're, uh, we've got you on for this. Um, when I saw it, I mean, knowing your interest in true crime, obviously, um, plays into this a little bit. Um, and, and again, the killing, you know, um, <laughs> just, uh, it seemed, it seemed like a, like a good fit. So I'm, I'm glad to have you on for, uh, for this episode. Um, what, what do you think of, of the, the, the Decalogue in, in general, um, you know, leading up to this and kind of this episode five in the context of what we've already, um, seen in the first four episodes? I really enjoy the Decalogue. Well, enjoy is kind of an odd term, I guess, for some of these installments, but I really enjoy seeing a director take on so many different faces and shapes and voices it feels like i the one thing about him that is odd for me and the reason that i'm really glad that you're doing the show it's encouraging me to work backwards from that point to try to understand a little better kishlavsky is the odd man out for me when i think of all those european heavyweights you know bergman herzog godard vendors karismaki bellatar i could just go on and on all of those filmmakers, I think I have a very clearly defined idea of who I think they are and what their art means to me. Mm. I see all of them as having such really specific voices, even to the point of exaggeration. And so he is the one for me that's not like that. And that really shows up for me in the Decalogue. And I don't think it's not that it's not that I think of him as having no voice or being underdeveloped. It's more like he's mercurial, like I, he's harder to put a finger on for me personally. And so I see that as a strength. He defies categorization or slipping into caricature. Hmm. And that's one of the, that variety is one of the things I really enjoy about the Decalogue. Do you feel like that's the case because um, he 
because he delivers a variety of styles or is it more that his particular style is difficult to pin down? Do you know what I mean? I do. And I think it's the latter for me. I think he has a very specific voice. It's just that somehow I'm not exactly on its wavelength and it's a really fun puzzle for me. I'm still searching aside from these that I mentioned to find the one that I feel like I really connect with because like I said, some of these outsized personalities, that's the thing I can really connect to and fix upon and then work my way in from there. He's more subtle about these things. It doesn't seem like he has to declare himself the same way for him to feel successful in his art. And so it makes it a little bit harder for me to get a grasp on, but it's also what makes it the most fun. How, and so how do you feel about this uh, particular episode, the the uh, episode five? It's my favorite of the bunch, but not because of the shorter version, because of the hmm. full-length film. Yeah, I think, like you said, it, they're, they're immensely different, and it makes a huge difference, I think, in which order you came to them, and I came to the full-length feature first. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I uh, watched Decalogue prior to, to seeing the film, so, um, but it was actually a, a number of years in between uh, when I had access to the two. So I watched Decalogue first, and then years later saw a short film about killing. Um, and it's interesting because it's so different from the first four episodes of Decalogue, and, um, and yet you kind of have to take the whole thing as a piece. And I think the framing of the 10 commandments allows you to say, okay, well, this one's different because it's so specifically about thou shalt not kill. Um, so in that way it's connected, even though it feels totally different. Um, whereas the, the, the movie, uh, you know, is, is its own thing and just sort of stands alone from almost really all of his other work. I watched the Decalogue first and then watched a short film about killing, and I felt the same way. Like when I saw the when I saw the Decalogue episode, it's such an impactful, like in there, visceral, violent, and out. And you're just you're left kind of like speechless in terms of like how brutal th- this this episode becomes. And I'm like, how how are they going to expand upon this? Because it is so lean and mean that when you get to the you know the longer version and it just they just add so much more weight and it's crazy how like i like my you know you see differences you see uh character changes you see more development and it just adds so much more weight to what happens to the characters that it is a com- like when you said earlier it is a completely different experience between the two like you can't yeah, you cannot say you've seen one if you've seen them both because they are just, you know, it's not like adding a adding a scene into a movie to make it an extended cut. It is truly edited differently and shot, you know, just worked differently. It's quite amazing. I really feel like the, um, the Decalogue episode is primarily about the lawyer. Um, I don't know how you guys feel about that but i think the way that they frame the story in the first half prior to the killing around his uh, essentially job interview for becoming a public defender it feels like it's interesting because his character is so much more well developed in the movie 
um, he's almost like a quote, he's almost like a quote unquote lawyer in episode five. Like there's no, there's almost nothing else that you know about him. You know, you know, this, this brief moment of that he had a baby, you hear him talking to someone that you assume is his fiance on the phone after the trial. Um, because later on he mentions that, um, you know, he was in the, the cafe, uh, with the killer, with his fiance on the same day. But at the same time, he feels so much more kind of representational of a particular, you know, not just as a stand-in for the beliefs of Kieślowski himself, which he's kind of said as much as that that's basically what he's talking about, um, uh, and Paishevitz, the his, his writer as well. But like, the, these people are, um, this this guy is really just like the lawyer, and he's there to kind of shepherd along this story, and, and we're looking at this through his eyes. Do you guys agree with that? I agree with, yes, the way that he's presented as uh, sort of a just a totem in that sense in, in the episode five, but I really miss what came in a short film about killing, because... The thing I think that's missing in the shorter version of this, if you're familiar with cinematic grammar, you you know, we've all watched a lot of movies, the way this is intercut, there's obviously a connection and an implied convergence. And that is what I love so much about the first half of the full length feature. It has that built in tension of how is this going to resolve itself? When are they going to meet? Which I really enjoy and cutting his part down so significantly for the first half of the episode five I think it impacts it negatively for me. No, I agree with that. I think the thing that I was, I disagree with about is the movie is always to me about uh, Yasek. Like I, even when the even when the lawyer we built more character in him in this in the follow up, Yasek the young kid, the younger man, uh, the 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 aforementioned killer, um, he is the one that I'm still constantly drawn to so getting more story and getting that round that rounding out of the lawyer character peter's character uh in the longer uh short film about killing uh really changed the dynamic of the story for me because in the the shorter episode i just saw that i saw him as what like you were saying matt as the sub as kind of like the insert lawyer here so we can have a lawyer later yeah. like I, it didn't feel the weight of his like losing the case, you know, you don't feel that like just the buildup of his character and his strong commitment to not like the death penalty being wrong and wanting to not be for, you know, not want, you know, just defend this guy because putting, having the state put someone to death is something he is just completely against. And you don't feel it as strongly in the episode. That's why I like when I was saying the episode, the episode itself, episode five just felt so brutally in out and done. It's just like, it's, it's harsh and it's, it's fast. And so I don't feel the, I don't feel like the lawyer taking center stage, but it does, it does have that framing effect like in uh, no end where someone is kind of introducing the moral themes in a, in a voiceover kind of like we're, this is yeah. the setup of what we're dealing with here. And, but it doesn't imply that these characters are going to converge as Cole is saying as strongly as the tension that is built up within the uh, short film about killing. I agree about that completely. You characterize the episode 
perfectly, I think, in terms of it really being just purely economical, like get in, get out kind of thing. Like this is what this is about. This is what's happening. These, this is how these characters come together. This is the aftermath of that. And the film has uh, so much more world built in around it, both with these specific characters and with the landscape that um, it becomes something much larger than what I think in episode five, which is done very well, and it's a very powerful thing, um, is really just ultimately a political statement. And I think what what he wants to t- really talk about, you know, and he said this in the inter- in in Kieślowski on Kieślowski, that he was really wanted to address not just the uh, issue of the death penalty, but the nature of Polish society, the loneliness, the the selfishness, the lack of empathy for, for your fellow citizens, and that really comes through, I think, in the film in a way that it doesn't in the episode, which is not, I think, a fault of the episode, but it's just what you are afforded by being able to tell what is a, a essentially still a very simple story. He doesn't, he only adds a few minor details to the story, which, you know, we can talk about further down the road here. I don't want to go right there, but I think, you know, we can, we can get to that. But I think overall, even those elements that he adds don't um, change the fundamental thrust of the story. It's still the same thing. And so you're, what he does with those extra 20, 30 minutes is really build out this world that surrounds them. This impact, I think, that Travis, that Travis has hit on the head in, in, for the episode in the true crime world, we would call that blunt force trauma, basically, is how <laughs> that episode hits you versus the yeah. movie, which the specific satisfaction that I get in the film of feeling threads start to come together seeing something so well assembled you're it's just apples and oranges essentially no and i think the other thing that really gets me is there is a passage of time in a short film about killing you feel time pass as opposed to the episode which it feels like this has all happened in in like the course of two days like justice is swift and unmerciful like there's this kid, he kills this guy, and like within a couple within a day he's he's hung and he's done with and it's over. Whereas, you know, the short film about killing, you you get a sense of, you know, the day is longer and from the course of from that act to his trial being over, uh you know, a child has been born, time has moved on, hair is a little bit shaggier on the on the lawyer. Like you just feel a passage you feel time passing that there has been, you know, growth in this world. Like this world has expanded and, and moved on from this moment, whereas the short film it's just it is. It is blunt force trauma as Cole said. It's just it's there, it's done and it's over with. And I, I like that more. I think that allows you to, as the viewer to kind of pick through those little threads and those missed opportunities or missed chances where these characters pass by each other in the world. And, you know, just like his other movies where chance plays such a strong feature in films, in his films, um, you know, there was so many opportunities 
for none of this to have happened to anyone. And I, I really appreciate that. Whereas other, his other movies, it might've been, he might've exploited those missed opportunities or, you know, even like in blind chance gone back and given you a different version of this day, Hmm. you know, by the chance that the, the guy does pick up the two drunks, the taxi driver picks up the two drunks. And so therefore doesn't grab the kid or the kid waits for his photo to be done as opposed to coming back. Or he actually, the movie's playing, he wants to see, or the lawyer takes a different case or fails the, you know, there's just so many opportunities for the story to go completely different and he, because I don't know if it's because we've watched all of his movies up to this point that I'm expecting those him to exploit those ideas that he has built into my viewing habits of his. <laughs> but by taking away those, like not giving you that opportunity for things to correct or things to change and just this is what is happening and you're just going to watch and just deal with it, it's really confrontational of him that I haven't really experienced in some of his other movies. Yeah, well, it's a it's a real... Um, inev- there's a real inevitability to everything here. I mean, um, you know, I, I, I definitely want to talk about the fact that the trial is completely skipped over in the larger context of the debate about the death penalty but i think it's also applicable here just the idea that like there was no way out of this like this guy killed this man and now the the government is going to hang him um the other thing i wanted to say about the blunt force trauma aspect is it's a bit ironic because i think that by far both killings are much more disturbing in the film than they are in the TV in the TV episode. Mm. And whether that's because of censorship or it's because he wanted to, you know, have the opportunity to expand it further out. Um, it is interesting in the sense of like it, it's, you know, it's much more economical and intense uh, and, and condensed in the TV episode, but in the, in the full film, I mean, it, I think that the, in the TV episode, it, it's not entirely clear if he throws the rock onto the guy's head or if he just tosses it aside in disgust and sort of walks away and lets him lie there and, and die himself. Um, you know, you hear a sound, but it could just be a rock hitting, uh, you know, the mud or, or something like that. Whereas... Uh, and and he kind of pauses, you know, he has this moment of like, can I really do this? Whereas in the movie, he just goes at it and we see it and he's doesn't seem to have any doubt about it. You know, it's, it's, it's a, it, it almost really transforms that scene, you know, and not to mention, you know, before that, the fact that, um, you know, he misses his neck and it, it becomes a much longer and drawn out thing. Um, and, and really, I think, you know, changes what, what we're watching in a lot of ways. Yeah. I couldn't help in watching the murder scene. I couldn't help, but draw comparisons to, uh, Alfred Hitchcock's torn curtain, because I know that he made an effort in that film to explicitly try to make the most brutal and realistically timed murder like how hard it is to actually kill someone Mm. like he makes that effort and it is you know 
it gets kind of ridiculous to the point where, you know, there's strangulation and then there's a little bit of stabbing and then he tries to slam his head in an oven and like, it's just and all the while they're trying to keep as quiet as possible because they could, you know, disturb someone in the other room and then give up the, you know, give up what's going on. But this one felt exactly the same way. Like even, even the, the episode five's murder, it still feels like drawn out. Like, yeah. Oh, this isn't going the right way. This isn't as easy as he thought in his head. Whereas the, you know, the film version, it's even more complicated. Like he actually almost escapes a little bit. He gets, he gets the head headrest off and allows himself to breathe and, you know, then starts struggling for help. And then the kid just kind of starts Im- improvising, which I'm sure in the uh, true crime world, everyone knows that's where things are going south and everyone's going to get caught. <laughs> Definitely. It's uh, he is a disorganized killer. No is what the terminology <laughs> would be in this. And it comes back to me when I think about how this goes down. One of the important questions for me character wise is when exactly did he decide to do this? Mm-hmm. And I don't know that I can quite put a finger on it. I think it was something that was building up in him for a long time. But to actually commit the act, I don't know that he fully didn't made that decision until minutes before. Yeah, I agree. And there, there's a few moments where he's kind of, he looks at taxi stops. You know, the, there's just, there's the scene on the, on the bridge when he's kind of playing with the rock. Uh, before he plays with the rock, he kind of looks under his arm and sees somebody loading something into a taxi and driving off. Um, it feels like there's all these kind of moments of him making this decision about what he's going to do. Like what he, he just seems incredibly lost, you know? And so the, the, the choice that he makes is simply the one that he had in that moment, not, not necessarily anything that was, uh, planned. I mean, obviously he didn't know this guy. Um, you know, I, I think there is a motive. I don't know if you guys want to talk about that aspect of it now. Um, it it could be a motive. I don't think you have to read it that way, but, um, uh, well, let's just, let's just go for it. What do you guys say? All right. (laughs) Um, so in the, in the movie, in the movie, uh, the feature length version, um, he comes back with the taxi after throwing off the taxi sign and uh, picks up uh, Beta, I think is how you pronounce it. Anyway, um, who is uh, the the girl that um, the taxi driver had been sort of harassing. um, And uh, he tells her that, you know, she wanted a car and now they have a car and they can drive wherever they want, which I think first and foremost tells you how he got caught. Um, I think they probably could have figured out it was him anyway with many of the other uh, mistakes that he made. But I think it would became pretty clear that after he stole the car that um, that he was the person that had killed this guy. Um, the other thing I think is the question of, you know, did he do this because he he wanted to steal somebody's taxi and make it his own car and then she can, you know, and then impress uh, impress this girl. Um, do you guys, I guess there's there's a number of questions around uh, this element being added to the movie. Um, but I think the first thing to ask is just, do you guys feel like this was a motive or do you think that this was something that came to him after uh, murdering this taxi driver? 
to me, that feels completely ephemeral. The thing that keeps coming back to me, and you see this in his conversation in the death house, he's only 21. And what strikes me more than him trying to procure a car or impress this girl is just, this is the lack of foresight that comes with youth, combined with this environment that seems to offer nothing in the way of a future. Yeah. That yeah. seems to me to be the fatal alchemy of the whole thing. Yeah, I agree. I think that's... In episode five, I felt like his choice to murder someone was a fatalistic choice on his own part, that he knew he was never going to get away with it, and all he wanted to do was be with his sister and his dad. Mm. You know, there was no... you know the choice to do this was his way of committing suicide without committing suicide because he's too scared. Um, whereas having that motive of trying to get laid is almost cheapens everything he's done. But I mean, I understand that because that is the motivation 90% of the time for murders right. is some sort of, you know, desire to please or attract or to, uh, uh, you know, appease someone else in terms of uh, sexual gratification. But, it kind of cheapened the the working theory I had with the episode five when I saw the film. It made me kind of go, oh, okay. So now we can kind of assign, we can assign that, you know, like most killers, uh, it's close to home. So he probably was in the neighborhood. He had sights on her. He saw the cab driver treating her like shit or being like creepy old man towards her and then decided that that's the guy he's going to kill. And that helps explain why he's walking around town looking for a specific cab because he never gets in a cab until he sees the one he's looking for and then you know jumps in and begins that thing it doesn't feel as random anymore whereas episode five it does feel like he's just picking someone out of the blue to to uh you know to change you know to do this uh evil act to kind of see if he can go as far as he can because he wants to kind of feel something different or just to escape or to, you know, thrash out in some sort of, uh, act out in some sort of uh, anti-societal way so he can kind of break out of that, uh, the you know, just the bleakness of that society that he's kind of like wandering around in. The pathology of that, that really strikes me because obviously in terms of this bleakness, not every young adult in Poland is going around committing murder. Right. Mm -hmm. So to paraphrase Jimmy Stewart in rope, there must be something in him that let him do this thing. And I think a sliver of that motivation is revealed in his conversation with Peter in the death house. And Travis pointed it out. I think it makes just as much sense, if not more that he wanted to go on to be with his father and sister, but he was too much of a coward. Yeah, the the one of the pieces that I read on on this uh, film referred to her as his girlfriend. I didn't get that sense. I, I I felt like they knew each other, but they weren't necessarily already in a relationship. Did you no, guys? Did no, yeah, no. No, this was not the Polish Bonnie and Clyde. <laughs> right? No. no, no. But I think yeah. I mean, I, it seemed to me like this was you know the girl from the neighborhood. And he's had his eye on her in the kind of, you know, Kieślowski voyeuristic way. Um, and, you know, maybe they've talked a few times and, you know, maybe gone to a movie or something, but they're not in a relationship or even necessarily 
that good friends. You know, it seems like she had mentioned this to him in passing and he is now taking it as this way to kind of, um, start up a relationship with her. Yeah. And she, she, I mean, I think she felt not just weird realizing that it was a car that she of somebody that she knew, but also like, what is this guy doing here? Like, does he really think I'm going to like drive away with him in his new car? Yeah. And it's, yeah. Cause you know, if he, yeah. Cause it, 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 it's a weird, it's a weird premise, right? Like if he knew that he, you know, the old man, the taxi driver was been harassing her and then he murders him and takes the car, you know, what, what is his end goal here? Like, obviously it's not very well thought out because, you know, he got caught pretty quickly. So it is a, it is a weird thing. So it leads you to believe, you know, is it completely chance all the way? Like, are we now taking it into, you know, Kishlovsky's uh, super everything is tied together fate and chance route in which he happened to kill the guy of the girl of the right. car that harasses the girl. So she automatically recognizes it and turns him in kind of thing or um, it, it, yeah, it's a it's a it's definitely a weird, uh, a weird thought experiment to kind of think about those uh you know what is the motivation because they don't give a motivation they i mean they give them a little bit but it's all left to us like there's not it's not a nice neat bow it's not you know there is no psychologist at the end staring at him from the window explaining to us like what's wrong with him oh well, thank uh, god yeah, but i do think I, I mean i do think <laughs> there is a reading of the film that can say okay well here's the motivation that they didn't you know they didn't include it in the in in Decalogue five, but this is the this is the motive. Um, yeah, but I agree with you. I think it 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 doesn't close the case on that, and if anything, I think it just sort of adds a little bit more murkiness to you know the reasoning behind this and and why anybody kills essentially because I think this story is intended to be somewhat uh, of an archetype uh, as opposed to like a literal telling of uh, uh a, a murder and then an, an execution yeah um, it's not a it's not a uh a procedural as, as no, opposed yeah. to well and it's kind of going off of something cole said earlier not everyone in poland all the teenagers are running around killing people because they're disaffected youth um it's interesting watching his his journey throughout the city as he kind of wanders around waiting for this moment to strike him or this moment to get in this cab and do what he's going to do um you just see all the examples of youth his age. Um, everything is just bleak or violent. Like, you know, you have that scene of the soccer hooligans coming back for some match and they're all like loud and chanting and together in some rough group and plowing their way through the crowd and kind of not stopping for anyone. Or you have the violence of, you know, the guy who runs past him and gets tackled by two other guys and he's being yeah. beaten in the alley. And so, you know, there is no... You know, there is no, you know, two guys sitting on a corner talking about, you know, philosophy and about films and kind of, you know, an opening to this character to kind of grow and change. Everything is either corporate suits in the offices and the, you know, rich older men kind of t expounding upon how to rule the society a better way. And then there's him on the streets just seeing how everything is falling apart. Um, you know, and the only joy, like the only kind of moments of joy he has is when he connects with the idea of his sister, be it in the photos in the, uh, on, on the wall or the two little girls that he's, you know, playing with at the window. You know, those are the, you know, those are the only moments of kind of 
contemplative peace or joy he's having throughout this time because the rest of the time is just it's pretty bleak out there and right you know Kislowski wanting to make sure he you know points that out that not everything is hunky-dory out on the streets you know we've had lots of stories of people helping each other or you know coming to terms with things and now let's get outside of this uh apartment complex and see what it's like out in the world and it's not you know it's not all uh bread and roses these people are still living pretty hard scrabble and things aren't that great well even tries to go to the movies and the the woman talks him out of it by by saying the movie's about love but it's boring which i i like to think that they were showing a short film about love in the movie theater (laughs) um no i mean i think uh i think that all that stuff is definitely um like so so much richer in the film and um it's also they're also different you know like all of those moments are slightly different um the the scene in the cafeteria i think is the same with the window but the guy in the alleyway gets pulled into the house in the movie you know he doesn't in the he gets kicked on the side of the curb um in decalogue five uh the pigeon scene is different you know the the other thing is um i don't know if you guys noticed this but the the biker during the murder goes the opposite direction in the movie than he does yes. in Decalogue mm-hmm. 5. Do you guys think there's anything to that? Do you think that, that it's intentionally meant to be an implication that this is something that happens all the time and can happen anywhere at, at, you know, at any moment, that it's not just one story, that it's different stories every time? That makes as much sense to me as anything else. I just fall back on the fact that with Kishlovsky being such a master filmmaker, it's not an accident. Right. But I cannot attribute what he might have been trying to tell me. I, I, I cannot specifically say, yes, I think that is what this is. Because I was thinking about how often we see mirrors and reflections yeah. and opposites. And so it could be him coyly playing with that expectation. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. There's, I mean, again, there's so much glass and mirrors. I mean, we meet, I think... Uh, maybe not the taxi driver, but the other two characters we meet through through glass. Uh, you know, the the glass when he's playing with the girl, even the enlarging of the photo, even photography itself. Um, and photography obviously is tied, and glasses and mirrors are tied to the previous Decalogue films as well. Um, well but even yeah, the cab driver, even the cab driver, we get with glass. He opens the door, which is a reflection of the of the neighborhood of. Uh, the apartment complex. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, like it's really, it, it, and I guess, I mean, these are all ways of looking. He's, he's always commenting on, on the way that we look at other people, the way that we're interacting with the world around us. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's, that's very apparent throughout this. And I think there is something, a case to be made that that in and of itself is what he's trying to do. He's trying to, 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 you know, call our attention to what we're seeing by making these tiny little tweaks. Even if he knows that, I mean, he, he wasn't, there was no expectation from him that there would be people who would be watching these two things back to back. Mm. Um, but even without that, there is this process of like, well, 
maybe I'm recall, maybe it's even more interesting if you're not watching it back to back, you know, maybe I'm recalling this differently. Maybe this is how it happened. Maybe I was wrong in my memory that, uh, that they pulled the guy into the, uh, the house when I saw this in the theater. Now that I'm watching it on TV, yeah, maybe they did just kick him on the side of the curb. Um, so yeah, I mean, it is, it, it, it's certainly playful, um, no matter how you look at it, but it, but I, and then it could just be him being, uh, you know, not wanting to be bored while he's editing the film. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it might be as simple as that as like, Hey, let's just flip this image. That'll be fun. See what happens. Well, the, the way, the way I read it, just thinking in terms of cinematic language and screen direction, uh, in the one episode where the bike is coming towards us, it's going from right to left. It felt like there was a hope, like that, this guy on the bike is going to hear the horn yeah. and save the character. Whereas in a short film about killing, the bike is going from left to right. So it feels like there is no hope for this character. He's going to die. No one is there to save him. So it created two different sorts of tension where one was built up of, oh my God, is he going to get caught? Is this guy going to like hear this? While the other one felt like, oh yeah, he has all the time in the world with this guy. No one's going to hear anything. And it was, it's to, it's it's too it's too, it creates two different feelings within the murder, and then having the bike going away and the longer protracted killing of the man uh, of the cab driver, you know it you can feel the length of that murder even more because you know he has time, and then you know with the train coming by drowning out any other you know calls for help that he could possibly have, it you know, it makes it so much more bleaker. Like there's just, you know, there's nothing. This guy's not going to get any sort of help whatsoever. Let's talk about the taxi driver. Um, Cause he's, he's a real jerk. <laughs> yeah. He's um, not killing an angel. That's for sure. Yeah. I mean, it, obviously, I mean, the lawyer is certainly um, seems like a stand up guy. You know, I think he's trying to, to do what he thinks is right. Um, beyond that, I mean, all the, I guess all the lawyer people seem nice enough. They're having their, you know, uh, good intellectual conversations and all that kind of stuff. Even the guy, I mean, who congr- congratulates his him on his baby. I guess there's kind of a disconnect between them and the, uh, and the streets of Warsaw that, that people are seeing. Um, but I mean this taxi driver really is of a piece with those streets as opposed to being the, this, this average ordinary guy that, uh, just, you know, gets murdered for no reason. Um, he certainly does not want to build sympathy for this man before he's murdered. This is probably the character I find most repulsive on a gut level. He definitely brings out the lesser angels of my nature in spite of the way I think I would like to be. I'd like to see this taxi driver punished for all his leering and his dumb cruelty. Yeah. Not, not this much necessarily, Yeah, but still, I think what tips it over for me into that territory where I really feel uh, such antipathy toward this character is when he's feeding the dog that hits me where I live. You know, I love my dogs. It's not benevolence. At best, he's just being shitty to his wife about the terrible sandwich. Right. But at worst, I imagine the extended fiction in my head, I think he's poisoned this dog. Oh, completely, oh, wow. right? <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I was waiting for this that. shot of the dead dog later to be... Yeah, to exactly. That, to put, yeah. 
Yeah, well, I mean, so considering tr- the way he he honks to have the the other dog run into traffic, I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, it's that. I guess that that would be certainly characteristic. The the trick though, the thing that I love that uh, Kishlovsky does with this, I find his treatment of this character to be an interesting flip side to Yasek's arc. It's really, I guess, a powerful indictment of me at least that he can so effectively vilify the victim as much as he ultimately humanizes this killer. Mm. So mm-hmm. it's a horrifyingly effective demonstration of what a conflicting muddle this whole issue is. Yeah, no, that's a completely. Yeah. yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, that's one of the things that I mean, even if you take the even if you take the cab driver at face value and you and you don't see any ill intentions in some of his things, you know, the feeding of the poor hungry dogs. Let's let's just say that we take our imagination out of it and he was truly feeding this the scrappy dog because, you know, he he stiffs he stiffs like the uh you know, we have our first like crossover we have the couple from episode two the husband uh, the wife who uh, was cheating on her husband with the baby and the husband uh they're trying to get a cab with him and he says oh let me finish cleaning it and i'll give you a ride and he just bolts on them so we have a character that he is motivationally bad but at the same time he has his moments he he feeds the dog he haunt he lets the kids go by and he gives a smile and a wave and you can kind of see like maybe he's an okay guy sometimes but he is a total perv and he is probably he's rude and mean when he doesn't need to be and he's just kind of you know he's a he's a typical person that you can just loathe but Kislowski Kislowski gives him just enough moments where you can kind of be like okay this this guy doesn't deserve to die like he's not running around killing people so he should be killed as well well he's, he's just... also he's also taking care of a wife who's in a wheelchair right i mean yeah they uh they definitely uh he definitely further kind of twists the knife a little bit by just having her be in a wheelchair in the courtroom there's no reason reason for that to, no. to be the case um, and then, and and then there's the the matter of the money, which he's, I I think he's, if, when I first watched the episode, I was like, oh, is he trying to pay him off? Is he trying to say I can take you to money if that's what you want? But I think what he's saying is that he's hidden money from his wife, and she doesn't know where it is, and she's all alone and will not be able to support herself because he no longer because he can't tell her where the money is is that yeah, am i am i reading that yeah correctly? That, that's what it felt like and it just feels horrible horrible <laughs> i mean he's essentially saying that he doesn't trust his disabled wife to know if anything happens to him to know where their sa- their life savings is uh, I, I mean, it's hard to imagine like a more like <laughs> telling evocation of loneliness and distrust of other humans um and just like selfishness and feeling like you know this is mine uh i can't give this to anybody else no yeah it's, did you guys uh, are you guys now uh, taking, <laughs> no, taking shots I mean, and <laughs> you just gotta sit there and like you know let these moments like i'm just I picked running through that just impassioned kind of pleas for clemency at that moment where he's got the you know the towel on his head and he's about to be bashed with a rock and he's just kind of 
begging for his life. Like that stuff, you know, even though, you know, as, as Cole pointed out, like this is a, on a gut level, this is a despicable character that you shouldn't care anything about. But in that moment, like you do feel that like every life is worth keeping around for some reason, you know, you, you can't want this guy to die. There's nothing that he's done that deserves what's going on to him. And you kind of, and it's, it's, it's weird. Cause you, you know, in the language of film and the language of, you know, American film, we're expecting to find that motivation at some point. Like, you know, the justification for this murder. Like, he was the one. Like, you know, when he starts telling the story about how his sister was run over, you first, your first, my first reaction was like, oh, here we go. The cabbie ran her over. And so now he's getting his revenge. Mm. But no, it was him and his friend, and they were drunk and on a tractor, and his buddy thought it'd be funny to run over his sister. And you're just like, God damn, that's even worse. Like it does it is. It's it's a senseless thing. He's killed this guy for no reason because he witnessed some senseless violence and he doesn't know how to get any sort of closure on this because it's just left him bereft and of in a drift in this sea of just horribleness. And so how how are we supposed to like, you know, rectify these uh these ideas in our head because there is no sense to what he's done. It's so it's so hard to kind of, you know, it, it is, it's challenging. He has made this challenging on purpose and then to continue on and watch him be, uh, you know, put to death by the state makes it even just as violent and cruel as what he did to the man. So it's, you know, that whole idea of eye for an eye, you know, I, it's, it's hard to kind of come to terms with that uh, concept. I think, one of the big effects actually of the truncation of episode five is that when you excise that beginning material with Peter, you come into this in such with such a different mindset because you don't have anything like a traditional protagonist that you can fix on. Mm -hmm. And so it establishes just a baseline of malevolence and ugliness with no uh, respite whatsoever that as a viewer, you don't have anything to even hang the hopes of any sort of um, not pleasantness is exactly what I'm looking for because it doesn't necessarily require that. But it starts the viewer off at such an emotional disadvantage in this truncated version that I think I can I can see where I would tend to not be as generous in my estimation of these characters to not feel as much sympathy it immediately knocks me back on my emotional heels to where I, I'm ashamed, but not surprised that I don't feel more for this person. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And, and being, being closer, well, not anymore, I guess in my mind, I'm closer to uh Yasek's age, you know, in terms of my, my thought processes, not, not that I think about murdering people, but you know, just, it's kind of he has that punk rock attitude which i had when i was you know that age of the kind of like you know spit on a window and kind of like you know fling a booger and you know wear my hair all fucked up and you know just be antisocial for whatever reasons that i had in my head and i was fixated upon at that moment but you can see that you know the cab driver is painted in the in, in number five. The cab driver is painted as someone who we are not to put our, you know, pin our hopes on. And the 
the uh, the lawyer is being grilled and being forced to you know state what his ideals are, and you're kind of left with him kind of feeling cold about things. You know, for me as a viewer, I felt cold towards Peter because it was kind of like, well, what's the point of this character except to be the voice of uh, you know the politicized voice of what uh, the message is going to be, and so you're left only with Yasek who. It's kind of just cruising around trying to check out a movie. He has a picture of his mom. He kind of wants to kind of get fixed up. And you kind of, you're not, you know, he's not bad. You know, he's flirting with it when he pushes the rock over the bridge and you hear the, you hear what happens. Like he's not running down the street kicking dogs and, you know, hanging a cat. Like, you know, doing that kind of meanness that you're like, oh, okay, this character is just, you know, foul and we're going to. But when he and then he just commits that murder and just the whole thing flips your 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 ideas and your who you're putting your uh, your faith into in this scene, like who you're connecting with as characters, it completely changes. You, you're now hoping that the other guy, the cab driver, is not going to die because you feel so bad for him. But at the same time, you 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 know, now you're going you're feeling bad for for the for Yasek because you're like, please do don't do this. You're just ruining everything for yourself. Like whatever you've been going through outside the world is not as bad that this is the res- end results. There's no need for this end result. It's so pointless. And, you know, and that's exactly kind of the point that Kishlowski makes a lot of times, you know. I think this when he calls himself a self-proclaimed uh uh pessimist, I think this is the full embodiment of his pessimism is in this in this episode alone. He's distilled it into a a rich and rancid bitter brew that we have to drink and it it's it's hard to swallow and it's i think he does such a masterful job with it both in the short and in the long i mean the longer version does give us a better sense of the other characters especially peter but you know it is still yasik's movie and you can't help but just kind of have to deal and you know come to terms with your own thoughts about the death penalty and about murder and about this topic it's it's pretty it's pretty amazing that once again in an hour's time he's been able to concoct this story to the point where we can talk about it for an hour yeah. and we still have so much more to talk about well i do want to i do want to talk about the the sort of this fil- film as a political work um but i i, I also wanted to say i mean i think what you mentioned you mentioned um the way that kind of murder is treated in American film. And I, it, it was interesting, first of all, that, you know, I don't know how true this is. I didn't look it up, but um, Kieślowski said that, that someone who was a horror expert said that the, uh, the previous longest murder on screen uh, was done in an American film in the, in 1934, which um, was surprising to me, but also like that, that, all other film didn't didn't catch up to you know the the level of, of brutality uh, in America that was set in 1934. <laughs> I think says a lot about American films. But I also think um, when you think about the the various ways that movies can depict uh, murders, um, you know it's a it's a it's a really broad spectrum. And this taxi cab driver, the way that he's set up could quite easily in, in, in certain other movies, um, his murder be treated as a a comedic punchline. You know, this is Mm -hmm. a guy who we hate. 
um, some, some, uh, burly, masculine, dirty, hairy type encounters this guy, you know, harassing somebody or doing something, pulls out a gun, shoots him in the head. Cause it's funny. You know, there's, there's, uh, the ways that we have seen, uh, murders depicted as people that regularly watch movies, uh, is wide and voluminous and, um, can be ultimately very extremely desensitizing and there's no way to watch this murder and think that it's funny that this human is being killed. Um, and I think the same thing is true of the, uh, of the execution. I, I, I think for even somebody who believes in the death penalty, it's incredibly hard to watch that and very sad um, and it, I can't imagine feeling happy that that happens, um, with, with kind of that in mind. I mean, what do you guys, Cole, what do you think of this film as a movie that is opposed to the death penalty and is trying to get people to think about their position on this issue? Well, it's extremely effective, obviously, because of all of the changes in the laws that then followed it. But when you ask who is this commandment directed at, I think it's at the state primarily. I don't think that there could be any doubt about that because we see, obviously, the parallels in the preparation for murder by Yasek and in the state officials. That's obviously trying to tell us something. Yeah, but secondarily, he's pointing this at the entire human race because why else would he make that murder sequence so excruciating? I was thinking about the exact same things that you were talking about, about how the presentation of this type of material, it makes such a difference. Those really incisive unspoken ways that we are given license to enjoy or indulge in violence. Right. And it sent me down this absurd path, you know, talking about, thought experiments considering the impact of realistic murder versus the cartoonish violence in film i was imagining the next installment after this of friday the 13th being jason goes to court (laughs) (laughs) what a difference those those things make it's um and so much of it is just implied and we just naturally understand this without anyone having to tell us what to feel about that at least if you're not a complete sociopath that it's uh yeah it makes it completely repugnant and it's so hard to digest on both ends whether it's the taxi driver or Yasek at the end we come to realize that there's an equivalence to murder being murder whether it's someone innocently randomly killing a taxi driver or the state doing it on your behalf yeah, that's one of the things that uh, in Kishlowski on Kishlowski he says is that, you know, the state is a representative, you know, representative of the people within the state, and if the state is murdering people, then they are representing your feelings about how you know that this is something that you're okay with, and he is definitely not okay with that. So the state has to come to terms with you know the people's will and. It is it is very clear, like, you know, we skip the trial because it's a foregone conclusion because we are getting to the point of watching how 
you know, this person is dispensed with. And it's so, you know, we have the lawyer who goes there to kind of talk with him because Yasek wants to reach out because he there's a human moment where the lawyer, after losing this case and Yasek's being let out and chains to the paddy wagon to be taken back to uh, prison, he, he, you know, he opens up the window and calls out to him and just kind of raises his hand in solidarity. And Yasek just makes eye contact with him. And that has really touched him and moved him to the point where he invites the lawyer, you know, a public defender, someone who's probably just assigned to him because of how the system works and it you know he has no stake into this guy's future he just happens to draw the number of the most idealistic lawyer who just got his license and you know wants to kind of make good and just doesn't and it's crushing to him and so for him to go to that jail and he is connecting with Yasik in the jail cell while we're watching the preparation and the impatience of you know like well, is he done yet? No? All right. Well, t- tell yeah. him he's got like five more minutes because we got to get this over with. Everyone's here. Let's just be done with this. And the, you know, the there's, it's funny talking once again about American violence. You know, think of every single, think of all the movies you've seen where there has been a death penalty scene where someone has to be put to death for whatever crimes they commit. Most of the time, there's some nobility in their, the execution like, you know, they don't falter and they walk right up to the gallows or they have something smug to say, uh, you know, as they're being hung or, you know, they repent in the last minute and everyone is, you know, watching them be brave on the chair. Or I think of Dead Man Walking with uh, with Chris uh, uh, Sean Penn and his, you know, uh, his his uh while he's getting his lethal injection, kind of telling his story and we're all there to bear witness you know, there's weird nobility and there's weird bravery. We're kind of feeling like, okay, this person, death isn't that big of a deal for them. Or, you know, they're just outright laughing at death. But in this situation, there's like, it is hard. He he has to be dragged in there forcefully. And it is brutal. And they're screaming and yelling and like, you know, crank it up, crank it up, crank it up. And it just, it is, it is not, there's no nobility in anything that is going on in that moment. It is complete like utter chaos and yeah, just chaos. violence it's 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 like it's almost it's less of a state execution more of a lynching like there is you know a bunch of people just grabbing this guy to get this done and get it over with before their emotions get the better of them and they realize what they're doing is wrong you know it is it is it is crazy how like i've never witnessed something like that you know in in, in all the movies i've seen where there's execution i've never seen an execution like this and it really really drives his point home about how equally violent this act is yeah. as much as the act that the kid committed. Yeah, I think that there are really, I mean, three key things in this story that make it uh, an, a, an incredibly effective presentation of this argument. I think the first is is just eliminating any doubt that this guy is the killer, you know, that there, there is, uh, you know, there, there's, I think in a lot of ways, the discourse around, um, the death penalty has been lost by, um, advocates of abolishing the death penalty in America because we have, um, seated grounds on 
the more just pure basic morality of murdering somebody uh, in the state's name and are arguing the minutiae of, well, maybe they're innocent. Maybe they didn't get a fair trial. Maybe the justice system is racist. All all three of those things are quite often true. um, And the, you know, that's important. Those are good. There's good cases to be made for those things. But I don't think that um, there is enough said about just the basic premise of a state-sanctioned murder. And this movie is exclusively about that, to the point where he murders him, and then we skip immediately past the trial. I mean, it's a jump cut to, and that's the end of the trial. And I think Kieślowski knows that um, that there's there's nothing that he could include in that section that wouldn't distract from the argument that he is making in the movie because there could always be somebody who's watching the movie and saying that guy that that speech wasn't that good in defense of of not killing this guy I I didn't believe it or oh, he didn't ask the right questions. And so that's why he's being put to death or the, you know, the, he didn't have a good enough lawyer or he shouldn't have said that when he was testifying about what happened, whatever it is, there's no, there's no, there's no way to not distract from the basic uh, argument of the film. And the third thing that he does is show that murder in such detail at the end and like you said, in, in such chaos, such a lack of what the government is supposed to all be all about, dispassionate order, and just, you know, fulfilling the, the, the letter of the law and serving justice. And there's none of that is depicted in that final scene. Um, it's just sad and pathetic and uh, incompetent and as as sort of dirty and despicable as what we've seen on the streets of of Warsaw for the for the past hour or or hour and a half. I don't think I could ever wear a blindfold while being put to death. <laughs> I'm for I like I, I I like to like when I'm at the doctor I like to watch the needle going in. If I had my druthers, I would have a mirror so I could see what the dentist is doing in my mouth. I, you know, (laughs) that was the, like, having them put a blindfold on Yasek was like, it was gut-wrenching to me. The concept of, you know, you can't see. And then all that chaos going on around has to be even more terrifying and making the whole situation so much worse. That, like, that blindfold was just, you know, just a... Just the, the way touch that made the way Kieślowski frames the lawyer as they're sort of showing the 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 hanging, um, and they've got the sort of you know warden uh, the the guards up front, and he's just sort of kind of doubled over in the back. He looks so small, he's out of focus, and he's just yeah, I mean he's in excruciating pain during the experience, but he doesn't, Kieslowski doesn't get up close on him. He, he allows that distance to make him seem so insignificant in this process and so powerless to what's going on in his name. Um, 
it's uh, that that part of it that part of that sequence was actually one of the most powerful moments for me because in a lot of ways where is the stand-in for us and there's nothing mm. that we can do in that situation one of the interesting details that stuck out to me this time that i don't think i reflected on so much before when they're reading the death sentence proclamation i find it really interesting that they also include that provision that specifically outlines stripping him of his civil rights mm, yeah which really got my attention almost as much as the you're going to die part it seemed like at least as much of a violation and one that is just unnecessary salt in the wound at this stage of the game that one really stuck out to me this time for some reason yeah that's because i mean and that's our that's part of like the uh the nobility in our death penalty that is you know the false nobility in our death penalty is is that you still have your civil rights all the way up until that moment that is not stripped from you even though you know being put to death is your civil rights being stripped from yeah. you in a, in totality. Uh, but saying that out loud, yeah, that is just, it's, that's the, the cruelty of that is saying, you know, saying it and pointing it out um, off of what you're saying, Matt, about the framing, you know, I think maybe this is a good time to kind of talk about the look of this film, the way that uh, the cinematographer, um, uh, Slawermir Iziak, the look that he built into the filming of this episode is so different from everything we've seen. Um, it's quite stunning. Um, he developed and built, I think, over 600 yeah. different glass lenses to be able to use uh, on the camera to give it a very specific uh, greenish hue to kind of they're called grad filters the way that they start uh, really deep and thick and then kind of gradually fade off to clear um, so the way that he stacks these filters on top of each other uh, just add a weight and a sense of you know a lot of times you have Yasik walking forward like walking left to right but the right side of the screen is completely blackened by these filters so there is no future he's going into he's always walking into blackness and there's a weight to the to the frame as a you know the sky is a dark dark color and you know the underneath and the sides everything is just kind of closing in and crushing in on everyone and in every frame it's it's quite stunning and then all those filters are removed when we go to the death penalty scene and it's it becomes like a clean just this is there is no you know there's nothing added to this image you are seeing the truth and it's just clean and grotesque and there's nothing that we're doing to make the image more you know unappealing because this is this is as unappealing as it gets it's it's quite amazing the fact that Kislowski had the courage to to in the idea to kind of not unify the look I don't know if I mentioned this in another episode, but I'll bring it up again to not unify the look by having a common director of photography. I think that seems to be the trend right now of, well, the only way that we're going to get the audience to appreciate that all these movies or all these things are tied together is by having a consistent look that brings them together um, by having each episode have its own individual unique style really helps 
separate the stories apart from each other. But, you know, with Kieślowski's direction, you can still carry all those, uh, you know, all those ties together. But, man, what did you guys think of the cinematography in this episode? I really loved it. I am really fond of their collaboration, actually. I, I think this is probably one of the main reasons why this film and Veronique are my two favorites, because Idziak shot both of these. And they were, they were the two that they made together. And they both share such a stylized visual aesthetic that it makes me work harder, I think, is what I enjoy so much about it. I think it's just mesmerizing. You've got all these murky margins. It obscures some things. It highlights others. Sometimes it's like an iris effect. Sometimes it's just complete decay. It's a less passive viewing experience than normal, and I think that's what I enjoy most about it. And then, like you mentioned, Travis, when you get to this finale, it's like they're throwing open the windows on the truth is what mm-hmm. it feels like. We've, we've come to the surface, to this inescapable conclusion after diving through all this murk, and there's no way to escape it. So I watched um, Decalogue first on the um, Kino DVDs uh, from the early 2000s. So at that time, those DVDs were so like murky and <laughs> dark. Oh. And so like it's like how, it's like how the creature from the Black Lagoon sees. Yeah. So it's like, that's how so, I imagine it. <laughs> so so watching um, watching this uh, um, this time around on uh, the the pristine arrow and then I watched the criterion actually as well um, was like, Oh, it really did look like that. That wasn't just in bad shape. <laughs> yeah. And I at like the first, probably half of the episode, it, it took time to adjust to it. It was like, this is just so ugly. Um, and then it became kind of just beautiful. I mean, in it's, in it's just like, grime and ugliness and despair um you know it's it 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 makes uh, you know it makes children of men look like a marvel movie it's like it's very (laughs) it's just got this real like and, and then and then the the way that the filters overlap and then just sort of start eating the screen on some of these shots uh especially where you're kind of where where you know you're you're following yasek it just feels like there there's a third of the screen is missing and it keeps you know shrinking in around him um it's just really uh really intense but i think in in the film is where it really opens up and um i just find this movie to be stunningly beautiful in a really hideously ugly way um, that yeah. is is not comparable to really anything else that I can think of, and the fact that that Kieślowski, um was willing to go there with him was saying, you know, that sounds like a good idea. Let's do this. Yeah, <laughs> um, it's, it's a... just amazing, and because you know, like it, it just it looks so different from the films that came previously in the series, and that he had that confidence, um, especially for somebody who's known to, uh, to rework things as he goes, um, and to, to sort of have the nature of a film evolve as he's shooting it to say, okay, we're going to have this footage that 
is all going to look like this, that's all going to have this very unique style, I think says something both about his confidence in this cinematographer, who he had worked with once before on The Scar, um, which, you know, we've we have mixed feelings about that film, but it did have a very distinctive look to it. Mm. And I, I think that he was ready to go there with him on this shows both his confidence in him and uh, his feeling of of really knowing where this particular episode was going and what it was about and what he wanted to say with it, because it merges so beautifully, I think, with his his larger message of loneliness and 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 this feeling of social decay um in the society that he grew up in um so i i yeah i mean i think this is definitely the standout element of of this film um and uh, he also did blue as well which i think is is the you, you know i'll be interested to revisit it but i think it's it's probably the 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 most beautiful of the of the three colors films so um yeah i, I mean missed that idziak shot blue he shot blue he yeah. also shot uh-huh. a couple of uh movies that i think don't get enough love for how beautiful they are he like shot harry Ga- potter and the order of the phoenix <laughs> that's not the one um, oh, okay sorry i thought you were going there <laughs> he shot uh he shot gattaca um which i think is mm-hmm. a, a really beautiful movie um and uh and then i i mean i think I, I kind of despise Black Hawk Down, but certain uh, from a from an ideological perspective. But I think the the cinematography is is extremely impressive in that film. Um, so he definitely has put together this 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 real career with a very distinctive style that um, that I think uh, is is on full display here, and it's really impressive what he was able to pull off with yeah. such a kind of you know fly by the seat of your pants schedule to 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 ask somebody to show up on a in a location because they're shooting this scene and now you have to fill put stack three filters on top of each other to shoot this scene and then we got to get out of here so that the next crew can shoot another scene uh it's amazing to me that he was able to pull off this this visual consistency and impressiveness yeah it's uh it did this the boldness of him as a cinematographer is quite astounding like uh, modern films as much as the cinematographer is you know the author of the image uh they don't use filters that much anymore right because everything is done post so you know even if you as the cinematographer have created this look on camera that you know through uh your LUT, which is the, which is the uh, these uh, settings you can put in uh, modern digital cameras to give you certain looks, um, it's still shooting it at raw, and so unless you apply that look back in post again, you can do anything you want with that footage. If the cinematographer is not there, right. you know the director, the editor, you know production can change the look of the film, and that becomes really disheartening for a lot of cinematographers because you know unless you burn in your vision into the film itself they can change it quite drastically and so for him to kind of just go full bore with it 
is because you know you could probably do some sort of optical process to kind of give that film that feel or that look right but to do it with filters you know there's a lot of thought process to it which way do the filters stack how we you know where's the dark spots what what is important what isn't uh what what part of the emotional center are we at here to be able to do that it's it's fascinating i think kishlowski uh, uh talks about an anecdote in which uh he he was on board with the filters, but he kind of was still on the fence about the concept. And there was a moment where he was in post and editing where uh, it's only in the uh, it's only in the uh, short film about killing, not in the episode where uh, he strikes he strikes the cabbie and the cabbie's false teeth fall out. Um, that's only in the short film, right? Yes. I don't remember. So yeah. Mm-hmm. His false teeth fall out. And there's a shot of these false teeth on the ground. And Kishlowski says that uh, when they were filming it the first time, they tilted the camera down to follow the teeth and the filters fell off the camera. And that print got got a that take got printed as well as the take they ended up using. But he said he wasn't sold on this idea until he saw the teeth without the filters on it. And he realized how much that, you know, uh, Idziak was bringing to the film with these filters like he didn't like seeing them in the cold blue just flatness and then how much depth and just all the emotional level that the visuals were bringing to the film it was in that moment that he kind of was like okay this is all working this is beautiful this is you know then he embraced it and went back for the edit to kind of use those images a little bit more fully and it was it's pretty it's pretty stunning as a person, you know, as a film, as a person who works in lighting and works in that side of the the film world. When you see something this bold and this uh, brazen, it really takes you back, be- uh, takes you aback because it's those types of uh, cinema, cinematographic uh, or cinematic uh, uh, chances and cinematic inventions and cinematic uh, movements that kind of revive your passion for why you enjoy that aspect of filmmaking, you know, and it's, yeah, this movie has it in spades. Like it was hard to embrace right away, but as soon as I kind of realized what, what was going on with these filters, I was like, okay, this is, this is a whole third level of storytelling in the visuals that we're kind of picking up on. And uh, it made for, you know, a third viewing to be quite, you know, stunning just to watch how he's uh, telling the story that way. What about the music, you guys? What do you um, What do you think of uh, Zvegniev's uh, Prisoner's film uh, score here, and the way that it's used, Cole? It makes a huge difference for me. It's dictating a lot of the mood, obviously, especially most especially with Yasek. It's obviously most heavily employed with him. It's foreboding, even melodramatic in his yeah. case. And it makes, it's kind of an easy shorthand, but it does make some instances that might have just been boring or uneventful much more interesting just because of, I, I imagine this is music that is playing in his head. This accompanies him all the time is the mm-hmm. impression I'm left with after watching it. But I don't know. You could disagree. Is it too heavy handed? Do you think But it, it's very melodramatic? Uh, imagine it without music and how much more bleak and <laughs> <laughs> like sad it would be so i think i think the melodrama helps with a uh undercut some of what's going on i know i know we 
we talked earlier before we started recording about some of the bleak humor in this movie and i think that soundtrack helps kind of buoy the you know you as a person who speaks a film language kind of like keeping you from just total and utter like realistic despair at what's going on in the film but i do think it does play it plays super dramatic but i think it for me it works in that favor of helping me keep some of my feelings surface because it reminds me that this is uh, dramatization you know what i mean so if the actual sound design and music accompanied or matched the level of the visual aesthetic we'd basically have nothing but these murky green images and then sounds of rusted rebar being pulled across concrete essentially well it would be an interesting like the only other accompanying sound yeah it would be an interesting experiment to lay down the scar soundtrack over this uh this movie because that had sort of this like alien you know bleak feel to it um it would be it would be a very even more deeply depressing movie although i i also don't feel like it would be quite as um emotionally impactful so i mean i think there is there's bleakness and then there's you know in the same way that i think that the uh the film is beautiful and ugly i think that there is real beauty in melodrama quite free quite frequently Mm. and i think that that to me and again i i want to revisit the rest of Kieślowski's films before I make any true uh, proclamations like this, but that's always how I've kind of viewed Preisner's work. Like to me there, it is very bombastic and sort of um, uh, emotionally wrought, but in this very beautiful way that I think just it's, it's always really effective to me. Um, You know, I think the, the final moment, um, would not be nearly as as memorable i think without without the music playing on it um Mm. i think it would be a a very different experience that wouldn't have the same universal qualities that it does uh as it's as it's shown i think it would be purely bleak and not uh not have the same emotional impact yeah, I can I can I, I can see where uh, Cole was going with maybe Tom Waits playing a rusty saw, like to <laughs> accompany just, that. Know, something more John. atonal. If you put Bartok oh. quartets behind it, it could be like I think Matt makes a very good point in that there has to be ultimately what Kishlowski is aiming for is relatability. He wants this mm-hmm. primarily to be a story that affects people, and so every element of it can't be something that puts up another barrier between the film and the audience. Yeah. The visuals already are creating a discord in terms of like how you perceive what's going on. So having the, having a centerpiece of that music, which allows you to kind of have an entrance does help, help the story and help uh, convey the emotion that you're supposed to be feeling. Cause otherwise you could probably set it to a late seventies, early eighties punk rock uh, songs. And you'd probably <laughs> get a lot of that same feeling from a uh, Yasik story. My other question is just about the way that this film deviates from the previous four films in the series and how it's similar too. I mean, I think that uh, all, all four of the previous films had this idea of a 
kind of a secret or a or or an aspect of the story that we weren't aware of um until the end of the of the story um you know the the reveal um if if you will uh, or certainly i guess not in the first episode but the second third and fourth do and here we have that as well we have this um this idea of uh of the 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 dead daughter you know we're seeing the the pictures her death her row si- confession well we're seeing her sister we find out that he lost a sister the the reveal of like you know he's been interacting with these little girls and he saw this picture and he wanted this photo to be enlarged but we didn't know who the photo was of and now we know at the end of this uh and it, it sort of shed light on a lot of things that have come before um I think one th- one area where it deviates is that that there is a lot of moral certainty in these characters. There's no dilemma for these characters to address in the sense of what choice they personally would make in a situation. It's it's more about the society at large and the movie itself doesn't expect you to struggle with that moral quandary it expects you to be on its side of of feeling sadness for this system that is murdering people um i wish i had like a amazing question for you guys based on those two observations but i'm just going to let you guys talk what do you guys think of those aspects of it or any other sort of comparisons between those previous episodes well i think what you were saying matt it just raises the stakes so much there like you say there's nothing essentially for us to navigate except how we feel about this one particular thing it's so it makes it the most relentless and the most bleak it's and possibly the most poignant as well, because you mentioned the blowing up the photograph, this theme of you can look closer, you can look closer at a thing, but the flaws won't be repaired. Mm. That's a huge observation, obviously not to put too fine a point on it, but that is, that is the inescapable conclusion that I come to. And I think the other huge difference that I feel this versus other episodes, this is the one, there is no other installment that I so distinctly feel as two halves. And that's the case for both versions, but in different ways. The others, I feel more of a larger fabric. This, I definitely feel first half, second half. Mm. And it makes a big difference in the way that I process it. Yeah. It has a two act structure where the others feel as one act. I definitely, I definitely picked up on that as well. I, yeah, and I, I think go, going off of what both you and Matt are saying, Cole, uh, that idea that the way that it the way that it is different from the others it w- is what makes this one work uh, more than the others so far have. Uh, you know, there are these little stories in which secrets are revealed. I mean, even the you know, even the even the episode one, there is a mystery kind of that we're trying to solve at the same time of like, where is this boy? You know, even though we've come to the conclusion that he's dead, uh, 
the, the father has not uh, come to that conclusion and he's struggling against all odds to kind of figure out what has happened. Right. And, and we have the, this, the, the, the aunt at the beginning crying, right? Uh, yeah. Seeing him on screen. She doesn't, and, we don't know why she's crying initially. So there is yeah, a mystery and, in that sense as well. Yeah. And this one is, there's, there's like the mystery, the mystery is why are we are with these characters. And then all of a sudden that's the answer is this brutal act of murder. And you're kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's inherent in the title. Like if you're watching, if you're watching along at home and you were watching this series, you would know that this is about thou shalt not kill. If you're, you know, if you're kind of loosely, you know, believing that the structure of each episode is following the Bible commandments, you know, to a T then, you know, you would know that this is about that. But just calling the film a short film about killing, you're building in the anticipation right. of what is going to happen. So that mystery is, how is this going to happen? How, you know, why is this going to happen? And you're just anticipating it. This is, uh, you know, Hitchcock, show them the bomb under the table. It's right in the title. We're about to see someone kill. And, you know, now we're, as the audience, is kind of deciding whether this is something we want to bear witness to or not um but no it's a uh, it is it is it is an interesting one because this one doesn't have a it has a it has an end like the mystery itself is you know whether or not you know she is going to stay with her husband or they do have the child or whether the father and daughter repair their relationship after that awkward night or whether the dude does stay faithful to his wife all these things are left open ended at some point there's no open ended to this this is over like this movie you know has a conclusion and it is brutal and it is harsh and then we're left with a lawyer who is broken and now is probably yeah. going to be a little more jaded in the next time he goes round on this so like he's not going to feel as as invincible as he probably did going into this uh you know after many rounds of interviews and going through these years of internships and he's given he's given the job still based on his ideals in which he started to become a lawyer about which is pretty important as his as his part of his story you know i was have been asked this question many a times and my feelings have not changed even though the answer has grown and become more complex and then he goes on to explain his feelings about the death penalty again and so to see him actually lose have someone die at his hands because he there was no way he could have fixed it you know the 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 scene that i really enjoy is that the lawyer does go to the judge to say hey what could have been done to avoid all this like did i screw up did he screw up somehow would a a better lawyer done a better job was my speech not convincing and the judge is saying oh no there's you were impeccable your speech was the best there's really nothing you could have done this guy was going to be murdered this guy was going to be put to death no matter what you did like well, this but he does say uh, he does say uh, you could have had a better judge <laughs> yeah well and then he says you know now it's up to me now i have to live with it does that make you feel better that i'm the one who has to live with his sentencing not you no it doesn't and he goes off and you know it's and then we're left with the we're left with the scene of uh, the lawyer in the woods crying like lost again in the woods like after kind of uh dealing with this thing and just weeping and it's a uh, it's it's really you know it, it does it puts a it definitely puts a period to this uh sentence uh where the others have always yeah. left it with an ellipsis no i think that's a really good point um and in in 
in a couple of ways. I mean, I think that the other episodes really felt like you were dipping into these people's lives really quickly and then getting out. And, you know, it was almost like you were putting your foot in a stream. Um, and you know, here you're just going over a waterfall. Um, and, and, and then, I mean, I think the other thing is just that the other four episodes feel very much like short stories, you know, they have these, uh, these really sort of, um, specific thrusts, but then they also have these little tiny details that make up kind of the larger tapestry of, a of, of, of fiction, narrative fiction. Um, that this feels like a much more like a movie to me, I think. And, and, and part of that is probably the sense that there is a beginning, middle and end, uh, to a certain degree. Although less of a beginning, I guess. There's just the middle and the end. <laughs> um, this, that's exactly where the shortened version of the film suffers for me. Exactly what Travis, Travis was pointing out. Yeah. When you lose so much of that, of Peter, in the beginning, when all of that is cut out of the first half, and most especially that thesis statement of the film, basically where, you know, not since Cain has yeah. any punishment worked to achieve the ends that we're talking about here, which is so, a Marx quote. Yeah. So he's quoting, he's <laughs> quoting Marx to, um, to communist <laughs> officials. And so, you know, he said he, he's about to co- tell them where it's from. And they're like, you don't need to tell us where that's from. <laughs> but because of all of those things that are excised, what we would have had as the remaining mystery to balance it out is where we don't feel it as much because what the mystery that is left is, is this the beginning of the erosion of the idealist? Mm. And since we don't have nearly as much of a sense of that, of him, then that kind of takes some of the impact away of what could be the elliptical part of this ending. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. The more you talk about, about that aspect of it, um, I am evolving from my stance that, that, (laughs) that Decalogue 5 is more about the lawyer um, and it the film does feel a bit more like a like a two-hander you know that 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 the killer and the lawyer are are kind of intertwined and I mean maybe in a way the lawyer allows for a framing device in in Decalogue 5 and I think that makes me you know that made me feel like, okay, well, they're focusing a little bit more on him here, or maybe they're just, it's more about him. But I think really what happens in the, the hour long version is the character characterizations just sort of fall away and it becomes this Mm -hmm. inevitable march towards the, this terrible fate for all of these characters. Whereas you get a much fuller sense of who these, people are um at the beginning of of the film not so much the the taxi driver i think there's not really it's it's hard for me to even remember kind of extra moments from him um in the film in comparison to the episode whereas the they're very vivid for the for the other two characters yeah i don't think they build more upon that taxi driver except making his death more right uh, repellent. I think that's the only. Everything else is. I think remains 
basically the same. Uh, one of the things that it does have in common with the other films, and we haven't mentioned him yet, is The Witness. Right. Uh, we do have two moments, and this is the thing that really struck out, uh, stuck out to me uh, more than in the other films is most of the times he's bearing silent witness to something that's going on. He doesn't really interact. And in this one, there's like a clear like head shake, like don't do this. Right. And and it's 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 much more, you know, participating in the actions and trying to change the outcome uh, than in any other uh, any any other of the films where most of the times he's just there kind of to watch to see what like the moment where something has happened or the moment where someone changes their mind, but he's not, you know. Except for the you know the moment where the girl's about to open the right. letter and he just looks at her, but even then, like he's still just looking. He's not, you know, he's not shaking his head saying, "Hey, don't open that letter." He's like looking, you know, he's looking at Yasek and he just does the the side to side, like, oh, "Come on, man, don't do this." Just wait, and Travis. It, by episode ten, he's eating popcorn <laughs> and just going, "Oh, come on, no, no, really." <laughs> Well, it's funny that Travis mentions that detail because that thing I was saying in the beginning about how Kishlavsky's voice is somehow sometimes mercurial for me, that we're talking about just the simple, subtle shaking of the head becomes this huge overt thing compared to anything that came before. No, completely. Like, it's the most... Yeah, it's the most... I think I read one of the one of the reviewer one of the reviews or one of the you know pieces about this movie is like this is the most uh, loud and clear we hear uh, Kishlowski's voice um, is yeah. in this film, um, you know from the lawyer's speech in which you know a lot of people think that uh, maybe it's a piece of its uh, voice because he is a lawyer himself, but. It's very clear that this is uh, Kislowski's thoughts and feelings about this subject completely. And then, you know, that head shake as well, that moment where he's clearly, as the director, trying to help his character understand that, you know, this is a fate that's not worth having. Like, there's this is a moment to change. And it's a, uh, it is, it's really, it's after watching the first four films, it's, it's kind of a powerful moment where you're kind of like, ooh. This must be really bad because the witness is saying, hey, no. <laughs> like, I, I watched a kid drown under ice and I didn't say anything. And now we're about to like, hey, <laughs> yeah. this is not good. Don't do this. But, but again, like, I mean, I fall back on, on my argument that Kieślowski is, is in most ways, but, you know, through this point in his career, fundamentally a political filmmaker. Um that 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 he would take thou shalt not kill and think i'm gonna make a movie about the horror of the death penalty um is just indicative of how his mind works and sort of where you know where he's at and the fact that he you know was was considering doing this but that this was something that was important to him at this stage in his life where it seemed like, you know, there was, he, he felt such despair towards the potential of anything happening that to, to uh, generate positive change in his country. When you look at the ending of no end that a filmmaker could make a movie like that and then think I'm going to try to change people's minds about this 
very fundamental pillar of our justice society, you know, our justice system, um, I think says a lot about him as a filmmaker. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I think like we've, we've mentioned before, it's, it's in these moments where he uses human drama as his tableau to get political messages across that his political messages reverberate loud and most clear versus when he's trying to be overtly political and which it just kind of becomes, uh, you know, yeah, make a make a make a movie about a a party official who's trying to get the death penalty uh, abolished, and you know is fighting with corrupt officials about uh, you know what Marx really believed in. I think would be a slightly less impactful movie than 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 what we completely have here. Yeah, even within the two versions of this film, you see that, and that's again one of the shortcomings for me for the for the television episode, because in the TV episode, the voiceover Peter's voiceover is the first thing we notice, and I don't like it as much because I feel like it's too stridently on the nose. Yeah, it makes Mm -hmm. me look at his character completely differently, and I didn't appreciate that particular manipulation. I felt like it was um, too philosophical. You know, it felt like um, you're entering this world um, from above to a certain degree. You're being, you know, you're, you're thinking about what you're about to see in a way that is decontextualized from the human bodies that are being torn apart in in what you see. It's, it's, is coming from a a literal and uh, and uh, uh, scholastic or yeah. educational bent, where it's like this is what I've studied in school, and this is what I've read, and this is the knowledge that I have, and this is my ideal. But he's never put that to the test ever, and now he, you know, he has to. He's his metal is to the test right away, and it it it. it comes up lacking and he can't do the thing he's always been idealistic about which is you know and so by building him longer in the short film about killing and then having moments where we humanize him even more where he you know you see him with his fiance and he isn't like i found the short film about killing where he says i was in him in that restaurant i i took it as a his story was so powerful that he could put himself in that position. It isn't until oh, you in, watch a short film about oh, killing okay. that he's yeah. physically in that restaurant with him. Like that's like, you know, that was the big change, you know, watching the next one, you know, the second version of the film. Uh, he was like, Oh no, he was literally in the restaurant. <laughs> I thought he was yeah, speaking figuratively. Metaphor. Yeah. Metaphorically. Like this is something that really struck me. Well, um, and most so... of, most of that philosophical speech is, is in a short film about killing. It's just in the context of him mm-hmm. being, you know, being interviewed for being this job. Yeah. yeah. So it, it just, it, it makes more sense. I think in that context, it's less of, a framing for the film and simply just a scene that's setting up this guy's position and uh, idealistic stance on the issue before he's actually experienced going through the process. Um, it's very, it's very telling that this is the one Kishlowski when he had the gumption yeah. to say, Oh, I don't have enough money to do this movie to do all these movies the way I want to. So let me take a couple and go see another financier and say, hey, I'll give you two feature films out of this as well if you give us more money so I can do my job. I mean, just the 
just the the balls on this guy. I mean, he goes around just like, I'm going to make this 10-part series. I'm going to direct them all. We're going to have different DPs. And then, oh, by the way, I'm going to spin two movies out of this at the same time. Like, come on, give me some money. He's just hustling everywhere he goes. It's it's just, it's it's fantastic that, you know, you see, you think of artists nowadays and you think of, well, they're really good at art, but they're not good at the other uh, business side of things because they're artists, and that's that. This is the, that's the stuff they're not good at. Where Kishlowski, he's just good at all of it. Like I'm good at the hustle, I'm good at the selling, I'm good at the getting extracting myself from issues, and I'm good at the you know putting this stuff to to film and like making these just human heart wrenching soul questioning uh documents and like the fact that he's able to do this and still be you know savvy in terms of business and still smoke like six packs a day and you know just <laughs> it's it's insane like there's a reason why he burned out yeah. so fast like he's just he everything was out all the time 100% and it's uh it's 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 quite stunning like this is you know the same guy who's able to you know shill and get more money by spinning off these movies is the same guy who made these two films be so impactful and so uh just heartbreaking at the same time just it astounds me as as a character that he is if only he'd had the work ethic of a fastbender <laughs> <laughs> that's what that's what Kishlowski needed more coke yes yeah. <laughs> um so i put no ranking in the uh in the outline but um a short film about killing is a film so what do you think travis should we do it oh oh geez you're throwing I me am. for a curveball here curveball. why don't we start you with cole so i can think for yeah, a second think you can think for a second because cole is gonna gonna tell mm-hmm. us uh what exactly am I ranking here? You, How, what's uh, you what's just, our system? All you have to do is just uh, tell us. Uh, well, you you've mentioned your your favorite. Oh, I guess you mentioned both short film about killing, and Veronique are, are at the top of your uh, Kieślowski list. Um, where would you put Decalogue sort of as a work uh, overall in the context of those two and and the other uh, Kieślowski films that you've seen? If I was rating Decalogue 5 compared to the other Kishlovsky I've seen, I would say just a hair below short film about killing. Say short film about killing for me is a 4.3 out of 5. Decalogue would be a 3.8. It's just a little bit on the other, on the underside of 4 no. for me. Because I really do feel the lack of Peter in the TV episode. To me, it feels like a, a table that one of its legs is just a little bit short because they were so balanced in a short film about killing. I felt each one of them were an equal third of this story where I feel like Decalogue 5 suffers a little bit because that's busy. Yeah. Are you ready, Travis? All right, I'm ready. I, it wasn't really that hard. I made it sound <laughs> like it was going to be a huge, a huge undertaking, and really I just had to scribble one more word on We actually, We actually paused the recording, and he went back and watched all. Every single movie that we watched. <laughs> Three <so> days later. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, to recap, uh, in the past, if you, uh, I mean, it's been uh, four episodes since we've done a. Uh, That's true. Done a one. So, uh, 
Uh, the bottom of my list still is the scar. It's too much of a mess and too over overtly political. Same with Short Working Day. These are the films we talk about when I talk about him when he's trying to make a political statement. It uh, doesn't work as well when he's just trying to tell a human story that happens to fall within these political ideologies. Um, Personnel comes right after that. Uh, if you, Cole, this was the movie that when you talk about uh, finding your inroad to kind of getting to know the director on a more personal level, like that that connection. This was the movie that did it for me. Um, it's the you know the story of a, a, a student. Uh, who becomes who gets a job at one of the state theaters and just kind of like behind the scenes of this play production and kind of the like the inner workings of that theater it's just it really connected with me and that's that's what brought me right into his films um then there's the calm which i still think about quite often that that movie i need to watch that movie again uh and soon because i think about jersey's performance in that movie often and i think about the horses all the time uh camera buff then no end blind chance and then a short film about killing there's just there's no there's no comparison to the other films like the other films have a have a tone and tonal shifts and there's a uh, humor and there's levity but there's also pathos and heartbreak but this movie is unrelenting in terms of its its goals and its emotional and how it's bereft of emotion the way it alienates you and, and alienates its characters from each other and from the society at large and just kind of leaves you to ponder lot of your own morals which you know this is the one movie so far out of the five in the decalogue that really strikes a what is your moral stance on this the other things are kind of take it or leave it i don't really just keep the sabbath day holy and honor your you know there's only one god and those kind of grand concepts don't affect me on a day-to-day level Neither does murder, but at least I know my moral compass is is still pointing in the right direction when it comes to when I'm challenged with this idea. So this film really, really is the top. So, yeah. Matt, where does this stand with you? Did you have no end at one before? I had no end at one before, but Blind Chance came back because oh, okay. I think about that film quite often. Thank you. I forgot to mention that. Uh, originally, uh, No End just eked out Blind Chance, but the more I think about Blind Chance, yeah. the more how much better constructed it is. It deserves to be higher. So uh, we are identical again. I think that a oh, uh, short film about killing. Uh, I try. I I I try not to use this word uh, too often, but I I think that this is his first masterpiece. I think mm-hmm. that this is. Uh, an, an impeccable movie. I don't think that I could uh, come up with a complaint about it. I think it set out to do exactly what it was, uh, it, what it ended up doing, and did it perfectly. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, I mean, I was just completely enraptured watching this movie this time around. Um, I think it takes what is a a exceptional episode of a masterful series um, and turns it into something that is all time, all time, 
just otherworldly film. Um, and I think it's an incredibly powerful statement about uh, a very specific political uh, topic. But I think more importantly, it says so much about Kieślowski's word worldview, his where his headspace was at this moment about Poland in the 1980s at the end of the uh, Soviet era. Um, and I think that uh, it says a lot about human nature and uh, it's not always something that I agree with, but I love wrestling with it. And I think this film really does that. It makes you question your own morality and how you relate to other people in the world. Uh, I think it's in that, in that sense, uh, a very powerful call to optimism, despite its deep pessimism at the state of things. Um, and, uh, I don't think that necessarily that that's intentional on Kieślowski's part, but I think the craft, uh, makes it that way because you're really pulled along into this story and forced to question your own belief system. So there you go. Very well said, man. Cole, thank you for, uh, another marathon session with us. I really appreciate you. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks. It was a blast. Did you, all the things you say, and then some, I, I feel, and I'm sure that you guys both feel the same that, we could just go on and do another two or four or six more hours talking about oh, this. Absolutely. It's yeah. full of such wonderful details that just further expand on all of these things that we've been talking about already. It's a real privilege to be able to get to discuss this with you guys. I'm very lucky that uh, I was able to join for this one because this is absolutely one of my favorites. We, we really appreciate you being here. And it just struck me that if we would have had Erica on for episode four, then tying that with her episode uh, of Lolita, then she could just be on pervy episodes, (laughs) which she probably would have appreciated. That's her specialty. Yeah. Uh, Travis, did you, wasn't it nice how Cole pretended that he and Erica couldn't knock this movie out in 45 minutes? (laughs) I know, right? Covering every single relevant point. Every aspect, taking us through the plot, very in nice detail while also just bringing these beautiful, Beautiful viewpoints to the surface and questioning each yeah, other. Yeah, we really appreciate. We you, really appreciate. You should you see my notes. I think Cole. I've only used about a third of the notes <laughs> I took to do this. So, yeah, it's a. Uh, it is, and and it, the ease in which we converse and we share ideas. I could talk to you guys about movies every day, and it, it would be a fantastic honor. And talking about these movies and and, and building these ideas, and uh, this is why I love doing this show and you know, love having conversations about movies. And so I appreciate you both for being a part of this. Thank you. Uh, Absolutely. Our pleasure. So, um, next time we will be doing something very similar with, uh, episode six and, uh, the short film about love. Uh, so, uh, this is going to be, um, a little different, but I'm not going to tell you more than that, Travis, because you have not seen them. Correct. It's going to be the other side of Radio Raheem's Knuckles. <laughs> it's this exact same cast, but the taxi driver and the the young man end up in a 
a wonderful relationship. They go on vacation to Austria <laughs> and just have a marvelous time for an hour. You know, that that would be one of the most lovely things <laughs> I think I could imagine happening in this film. That really, what the missing piece that they had was each other. <laughs> and I guess... With that, with they're that, complete for... <laughs> they're complete for a week. <laughs> 25th Frame Media 